Hi guys, thanks so much for listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast. My name's Ali Maxwell, my co-host George Ellick. Just travelling back actually today from what has been a fairly long holiday. We hope and think that he's returning motivated, refreshed, ready to tackle 2019. Um, because he has a day of travelling in front of him, I-, I made this podcast a little bit different. We wanted to make sure we got something out. And in the end, what we've ended up with is is a very long podcast and uh, a slightly different format. It almost feels kind of like a, r- a radio show in some regards. And I, I just implore you to check the uh, sort of running order. I'm going to write the time codes in the description of the podcast. I'm going to write the time codes in the tweet uh, when I release the podcast and just have a look and make sure you're aware of what's to come. It is a bit different, but hopefully some really interesting things in the podcast. Uh, we have spoken to George. I made sure that I got him on the phone from a car park in Cape Town uh, for 10 minutes or so. I said, pick your favorite topic from across the EFL, pick the best topic and we'll touch on that. So George chose the League One relegation battle. I think it'd be wrong to call that his favourite topic right now, but certainly across the EFL, one of uh, many very, very interesting storylines. So we we go in depth on that. There's also going to be a conversation with Gab Sutton, who many of you'll know uh, on Twitter as The Football Lab, a a wonderful website where he analyses EFL games from across all three divisions doing a fantastic job and has done for an awfully long time. He was at Birmingham Borough on the weekend. He goes to a different game each week. We've also phoned up David Anderson, who's a Brentford fan. David writes really, really fantastic blogs about Brentford and about the championship as well. He was at Griffin Park to watch what many are calling Brentford's best performance of the season in beating Stoke and and a turnaround in form that has come from a change in formation. I wanted to do a Uh, A little something different, a bit of tactical chat today. So I think that that is uh, a really interesting discussion with David, who breaks down Brentford's 3-4-3 really, really well. I I think and I hope that even for non-Bees fans, that will be an interesting discussion. And of course, we spoke to Gregor Robertson, who was at Bury for MK Dons 3, quite simply the best game in all of English football on the weekend, and one that had a fair amount at stake. Gregor uh, loved his time at Gig Lane and takes us through what was a sensational afternoon. Uh, Before we get into this smattering of chats, I'm going to quickly round up each division, starting with the Championship, at the top of the Championship, leads in the face of Spygate, extending their lead at the top of the Championship. That's now four points. They did so beating Derby very, very comfortably on Friday night. We had a few really good uh, Sunday scouting reports. I'm going to use some of these during the, the roundup. Mike said probably the best leads have played this season, which is saying something. Uh, Derby completely nullified and Jack Clark, 18 years old, terrorising their defence. Uh, Ross says Leeds dominant from minute one to 90. Derby couldn't live with the tempo throughout and very rarely strung a series of passes together. Uh, Jack Clark will take all the headlines, but Adam Forshaw was just as good, if not better. Derby very poor. Jack says top performance from Leeds, suffocated their attacking threat and created lots of chances. Alioski at left back, brilliant. Clark electric and Forshaw with his best game for Leeds. Good to have Cooper back. Imagine if we ever had a fully fit squad. Yeah, you can see where Jack's coming from. I must say that it's uh, amazing that uh, Bielsa is able to swap in 
these players in the place of injured players. In this case, Barry Douglas was out as well. And, and that was Alioski dropping back to left back. And because of the system he's implemented, it doesn't seem to impact Leeds and their performance levels as much as it seems to impact other teams. And that is a, um, a massive, massive thing. And, and when people are still talking about, oh, Leeds are going to fall apart in March because they'll have seven or eight players just who can't take it any longer. Well, actually, they've had injuries throughout the campaign. I think they're the team least impacted by injuries. Not to say that they haven't had plenty of them, and they, they surely have, but the fact that it doesn't seem to massively affect their performance level, that's key for me because that's not the case for many other teams. And, and that's why I'm, I'm confident that even if they do suffer the same amount of injuries as they have done all season, that they'll still be able to get over the line. I think they are uh, clearly... Uh, now the best and most consistent team in the championship and as I said on Twitter the other night uh, they are to my eyes just a cut above the rest in this division and I, and I truly believe now it would take something uh, quite drastic for Leeds not to win promotion to the Premier League. As for Spygate this is a tricky one because it, it's a subject that's really raised a, a lot of discussion, a lot of anger in the press over the weekend and there's been backlash, then there's been backlash to the backlash. I think where I stand on this uh, is that I don't believe Leeds should be deducted points. At the same time, I don't think it's, I, I just think it's really quite poor form. If Bielsa, who is, who puts so much emphasis on training and the training ground and what he does with his Leeds players, I think Really, if there was, let's say, Frank Lampard or another manager in the championship, if we found that they'd been caught at Thorpe Arch with some pliers trying to secretly film or secretly watch Bielsa's training sessions, I do think that's clearly poor form. That's clearly, I don't want to say immoral. I do think people use language that goes too far here. I personally don't like it and I don't think that it is sport in the, the true sense of the word. So, I would like that not to happen. But at the same time, I think the whole thing has been entertaining and uh, I, I don't want to take it too seriously. Uh, I'd be interested to see what the EFL uh, or FA or whoever it is is, is going to decide to do here because I'm not really sure if there's particularly any precedent or necessarily any uh, particular rules that, that really apply to this. Moving on now and Birmingham lost to Middlesbrough. We talk to Gab Sutton about that a bit later on. Uh, the reason Leeds extended their lead was that West Brom and Norwich played each other, the second and third team, and it was a, a fairly even game, I think. Uh, Tim said West Brom were the better side and used their width to exploit Norwich, but Norwich improved as the game went on and West Brom didn't deal with their switch to a back five. Uh, Grant says it was one of West Brom's best performances of the season and, and encouraging they were able to play so well without Harvey Barnes. Deserve the three, the three points. Rakeem Harper, who got the chance in Barnes's, Barnes's absence, looked a star. He was playing a sort of advanced midfield role. It'd be interesting to see if he keeps his place or whether they look to get someone else in. Uh, Patrick said this was a good game, Albion the better side, but failed to get a crucial second. And, and that's what it is, isn't it? Norwich's second half goal stats are absurd and, and you felt Baggies always needed uh, a second goal because it's so rare that they keep a clean sheet. So honours even on the day and, you know, a good result for Norwich, you'd have to say there. Elsewhere, we saw Sheffield United move into second spot. They beat QPR 1-0. We had a neutral observer at this one. Fuzzy Dunlop tweeted us to say QPR seemed to be set up for a 0-0 and they did manage the game well for the first half hour but never looked like getting back in the game once behind. Blades were in control second half. McGoldrick, the best player on the park by a mile. My own note says, what a cross from Norwood. Truly one of the best assists of the day uh, where else did we get some interesting stuff Reading beat Norwich uh, Nottingham Forest now Forest clearly 
Uh, as we know, parting company with Aitor Karanka. Today, it's been reported that they will be hiring Martin O'Neill, which is something that deserves much more in-depth analysis that I just don't think I'm going to give at this stage. It's been such a busy day putting uh, all this podcast together, and I really want to get this out on time. So I'm not going to go deep on Forrest and Martin O'Neill just yet. We will tackle that on the betting show on Thursday. Reading fan George was at this one. He said he watched Reading outclass Forest from the first minute. Uh, Andy Rinomota, excellent as were new signings. Ajaria and Baker playing great attacking football under Jose Gomez. Good vibes at the Madstad. We are staying up. And Callum said Reading won some football. We scored two goals and conceded zero goals. Jose Gomez is doing lovely things and is a lovely man. There was even a 20-man brawl in the second half to liven the mood. Callum on the same sort of theme as George saying, I do feel confident we can win seven or eight games at least. So good times for Reading fans. Bristol City beat Bolton. Bolton took the lead against the run of play here. And then Lee Johnson made a triple substitution and switched formation. So uh, impressive. They scored two goals within five minutes after that to turn it around and get uh, a home win that was much expected. Bristol City very much floating under the radar. Nine unbeaten in the league and sniffing around the playoff places. Ipswich got a huge win against Rotherham down at the bottom. They they really did need that. Otherwise, it would have been, to my eyes, undeniable that they were definitely going down. Still a huge probability, you'd have to say. And they rode their luck at times. But they got the win. They got their noses in front. Um, and, and Rotherham, dominant in the second half. They were catapulting the ball into the area but Ipswich's new signing James Collins heroic battling uh, Rotherham forwards and uh, cramp on cramp on cramp uh, and beating both uh, he made a huge difference and that Ipswich defence that has folded so many times this season did the opposite in that game held firm and that's a, a huge huge result for them Wigan beating Aston Villa 3-0 this was a, a very very impressive and very welcome performance from Wigan uh, who I think uh, have, have stalled a little in recent weeks and, and this was just a, a big statement really uh, that their home form is still uh, such that they will put in exceptional performances. 3-0 against Villa. Georgia Villa fans said very one-sided with the score in no way flattering Wigan. Not a single shot on target for us. We were awful from the first minute. Reese James, very impressive for Wigan. The on-loan Chelsea right-back how many times have we heard that said this season? Blackburn beat Millwall in the late game. This game might as well not have happened for the first 80 minutes, but Adam Armstrong made the difference and showed the only bit of true class going forward in the game. Uh, firstly, uh, involved in the in the opening goal and then scoring a fabulous second goal to put the game to bed. For Blackburn, this was the, the perfect way to back up that win against West Brom last time out, and they're up to 14th now with a good 14 points clear of themselves in relegation. That was the sort of distance, I think, that the fans were looking for, possibly that the fans needed, really, after a couple of relatively uh, testing weeks, I think it's fair to say. Hull just march on six wins in a row now. They are truly uh, the form team in this division, and it's fascinating to see how far they can go. They mauled a woeful Wednesday, says East Hull Tiger, to continue a magnificent run, superb team performance. Owls, not a single shot on target. Their last game, the 6-0 win against Bolton, not a single shot on target as well. So uh, superb, superb stuff for Hull. Grasitsky, superb. Kevin Stewart round the midfield. Uh, and, of course, Bowen, not even mentioned by this very happy Hull fan, East Hull Tiger. Bowen in the goals again. I think it's nine goals 
in eight games for him, which is absolutely sensational. Preston and Swansea drew 1-1. I think the less said about this game, the better. I mean, it, it was such a, a fantastic day in the championship and this game was, as Jack described, a fairly nothing match. But for Preston to see Jaden Stockley and, and Potts in the starting lineup and both of them putting in good performances, uh, that will be very, very welcome. We've not mentioned Brentford 3, Stoke 1, or Birmingham 1, Middlesbrough 2. That's because we've got special guests to talk about them. Uh, we're going to start with the game at Birmingham. It was a, a big game, really, for both sides. Birmingham just outside the playoffs, and Middlesbrough recovering from a poor run uh, and looking to make sure they are firmly established in them. Uh, and Middlesbrough came out 2-1 winners. Gab Sutton was at the game. As many of you will know, Gab covers the EFL brilliantly. Uh, and there were a couple of really interesting points in his analysis of this game. So I called up Gab earlier and I wanted to hear more. So here's Gab Sutton, the Football Lab, talking about Blues 1, Middlesbrough 2. Gab, we're delighted that you're able to talk us through this game because I think actually uh, there were so many impressive results in the Championship this weekend. It feels like one of those ones where you almost have to talk about every game on the pod, which is difficult timing-wise. But I sort of think this is the, the underrated win of the weekend for Middlesbrough, a team who we, we were quite down on a few weeks ago. But Blues had only lost once at home this season and, and Borough went and picked up a, a very, very valuable win. I just wondered from you in the flesh, how you sort of analysed that Middlesbrough performance, how, how impressive you thought that was? Well, I probably looked at the game slightly differently to a lot of um, Birmingham City fans. I think the, the wider kind of perception of it was the quality of Middlesbrough passing was, uh, was very poor. And a lot of people were saying Tony Pulis is a sort of a dinosaur or he's passed it. And I, I kind of have a slightly different perspective on that because I actually think that the way he set Middlesbrough up without the ball played a massive part in nullifying Blues uh, for at least the first half and, and, and perhaps longer per uh, periods within the second. Uh, and what I mean by that is he played five central midfielders um, which isn't a particularly common thing to do. <laughs> no, but it's actually, not. <laughs> but if you put George Savile um, on the left, I think it was, and Johnny Harrison on the right, what they do is they cover the space on the inside so that Jota and Magoma have to go on onto the outside because that's where the space is. But actually, if you look at what Jota and Magoma, when they've been brilliant, as they have been for most of the season, it's been sort of being quick in transition. It's been sort of cutting in sort of between the lines and getting up to support Djokovic and Adams. I think that Tony Pulis's game plan completely nullified that. And they had three or four clear-cut chances in that game. So although not everyone will see it this way, I think that was a tactical view, uh, victory for Tony Pulis. You mentioned Blues looking to move forward quickly in transition. Watching the highlights back seemed like a real feature of Middlesbrough's play uh, as well. So, so a good tactic in that sense from Pulis. They were, they were chucking players forward. There was that goal scramble in the first half. I think there were six Borough players in the box in, in that instance. And, and an excellent first goal, uh, a ball from Housen through to Dale Fry down the right. And he set up uh, Lewis Wing. So in possession... Fry and, and Wing, young players who, who are getting their chance from Pulis and very much taking it. How, how did you find the performances from those two young Borough men? Yeah, I, th I thought they were probably two of the best players on the pitch. The first thing that I'd say about Lewis Wing, um, he was sort of on my radar because a lot of Yeovil fans were um, impressed with him in the second half of last season. And what I thought about him was that, although I think he's a very, um, very technically... Um, gifted player. I think he showed great movement for 
the first Middlesbrough goal and also a lovely pass for Sombolonga for the winner. So he was involved for Middlesbrough in the attacking sense. But I also think he was willing to sacrifice himself for the team to an extent. Um, he showed a willingness to get stuck in as well. I think he had great energy about him. And I was kind of looking at him in the first half thinking, he, if you release the shackles on him, he probably could be a very good player. Um, but he also showed the professionalism. He didn't sort of throw his toys out of the pram. Um, he put in a real sort of team performance as well. So I was very impressed with Lewis Wing. Um, and of course, Dale Fry, I think being a ball playing centre back, it maybe made it slightly easier for him um, to contribute in, uh, towards that first goal with a lovely cross to the back post. In terms of those tactics and giving Tony Pulis a bit more praise, breaking quickly in transition against a Birmingham side so difficult to break down once they get their men, their players behind the ball and defending a low block. Another real boon, I suppose, for Pulis that his players were able to implement that. And the winning goal... I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic ball through from wing and a, and a wonderful finish from Asamba Longa, who you feel, uh, just just my perception anyway, might have a, a difficult relationship with Pulis, or at least not, not the absolute best, but it was a fantastic finish. From a Birmingham point of view, really frustrating because having gone level through a wonderful goal, it struck me that they really were caught out there. And that's the sort of goal you haven't seen Birmingham concede very often this season. They'll be pretty furious to have lost a game at home with that being the winning goal, I think. Yes, um, I, I think that it's interesting because when, um, when as soon as Blues equalised to a lovely um, goal from Che Adams, um, Gary Monk made the decision to go ahead with the um, substitution of uh, taking off Keefton Bell and putting on the striker Isaac Purcell. Now, I think he'd probably planned that substitution um, as a sort of last resort, assuming we were still losing, but he still uh, went ahead with it. Um, as while we were level and actually at the time I suppose as a fan perspective um, I, I kind of felt well Middlesbrough are on the back foot they are there for the taking you know let's go up, up and at them but then I suppose as soon as Middlesbrough scored they sort of pounced on the gaps at the back um, and I think Keefton Bell not being there does make a big difference uh, in that regard it probably was one of the factors behind why we conceded that goal. So I think from an emotional perspective and from a kind of um, opportunistic perspective, I suppose, it was sort of nice to see an attacking, bold move. Mm. But it probably ended up costing us sort of, in hindsight, it probably cost us the game. Yeah, it was hard to watch. I, I think it was Michael Morrison uh, chasing after us on Belonga. Uh, absolutely not the quickest centre-back you'll ever see uh, and a reason why uh, him and, and his partner, Dina, are much more comfortable um, defending in a slightly deeper positioning, I think. Um, in terms of Borough, it's been a while since, since we discussed their promotion uh, potential, their promotion capabilities. Of course, they're, uh, they're in the playoff positions at the moment in fifth. Uh, actually five points ahead of Bristol City, who are the team in seventh. So so fairly comfortable at the moment in those positions and just four points off at Sheffield United in second. So uh, I'm sure you would have had, had a think about about where you see them now, having seen them in the flesh and seen where they are with, with 19 games to go. What are your thoughts on Borough's potential for the rest of the season? I don't see them uh, getting into the top two because I think that in terms of... Uh, quality in possession. I, I still think they're slightly limited, um, but I do think that there is a reasonably big gap between uh, the sixth best team or the seventh best team 
uh, and the rest. I think there's there's teams like um, ourselves, like QPR, like Hull, who probably rely on these kind of, should we call it momentum alley, mm. um, type <laughs> runs. Um, whereas I think that Middlesbrough, they might not always be um, at their best, but just in terms of the consistency, in terms of the defensive record, 18 goals conceded in 27 games. They're so reliable um, at holding on to leads once they get in front. Um, I just think they'll have enough to hold on to a playoff place. In terms of, of Birmingham, then, uh, they're in eighth, and, and it's interesting to hear you say that you think there is a bit of a gap between themselves and the playoff uh, teams, the current playoff teams, because they're not far off it, just four points. Uh, and we were asked on Twitter uh, just the other day whether we thought that uh, Blues could sustain uh, a playoff push. So I think there's a couple of interesting points here. First of all, um, from your point of view as a Blues fan, but also as someone who follows uh, and knows everything there is to know about the rest of the league as well, um, what do you think about Birmingham and going forward to the rest of the season? Because there's this question of can they make a playoff place, but actually that there's a sort of elephant in the room in the form of a potential points deduction that you're sort of using as, as, uh, as, as a, um, a point of big importance, really, when it comes to, to Blues. Yes, uh, I think if we just had to, if it was just a case of getting to 50 points to stay up, I, I wouldn't be, that wouldn't really be my focus because I think getting the 11 points between now and the end of the season is a, a formality for Blues. Um but I think the fact that it might be 12 or 15 points as a deduction, that means you're looking at 62 points and 65. That means that that's not necessarily a guarantee if we start to go on a bit of a bad run. It's not the biggest squad we've got at the moment. I think if you looked at our subs bench against Middlesbrough, there were sort of three or four academy graduates. And while I suppose from a fan perspective, it's great to see these young lads sort of getting that opportunity in the first team, I still feel that more depth is needed if one or two players get injured, I think that could possibly hinder us. So while I think we're doing great to be in this position, and I think Gary Monk is doing a remarkable job, I still think that for now, survival and consolidation has to be the aim. One of my favourite things about the job Gary Monk has done uh, has been how he has put together this side, and specifically this front two of Lukas Djukovic and Che Adams. Of course, both have been in fine health this season, no injuries to speak of, which is hugely important. And you have to feel an injury to either of them would be uh, one of the more key players you could lose. But Adams now with 13 goals, three assists. Djukovic with 10 goals and nine assists. And, and another example of them link, linking up well on the weekend. With so few front twos in the league, it seems obvious to say that they are, um, uh, along with Gale and Rodriguez, sort of right up there. But just from watching them week to week, what is, what's so good about this partnership? What works so well, do you think? I think they complement each other well. I think you've got the, the industry of Lukas Djukovic, who can win the aerial duels, he can hold the ball up for other players. Um, and then you've got the, the sort of nippy pace of, of Che Adams getting in behind, kind of running the channels. Uh, it's a lovely cross from Adams for, um, for Djukovic for one of his headers that um, Randolph saved against Middlesbrough. Uh, but, and, and of course, combined for, for the goal that you mentioned. So I think they're going to be very important for Birmingham City. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen for in terms of Che Adams in the January transfer window. Uh, I'd be surprised if there isn't interest. Mm. But uh, I think they've been vitally important, especially um, when there's space to, for them to attack in transition. Now, I don't think they were able to sort of interchange um, as freely, perhaps, against Middlesbrough as they have been against 
um, able to against other teams. But generally, they've been hugely important for Blues in terms of uh, the attacking play. Right, January transfer window and Birmingham. Last question uh, is going to be on this because I squeezed out some tweets on the Not The Top 20 pod account on Saturday night after watching the highlights. Uh, my, my sort of Before I watched the extended ones, when I just watched the goals, basically, um, I couldn't stop thinking about uh, Lee Camp for that final goal. The, the ball through from wing was very impressive. It seemed to, to take a long time to get... Uh, all the way through into the box for a Sombolonga to lift it over the the eventually on-rushing camp. But I, I couldn't help but feel like camp could have come out a bit earlier, could have committed himself. I personally look at that starting eleven, which Gary Monk has made so efficient, so effective, uh, and, and everyone contributes, and I find him to be the, the weak spot. So I, I wondered aloud, really, whether there was any chance of Blues getting in a, a goalkeeper on loan, quickly to be told that Birmingham, allegedly, and maybe you can confirm are basically allowed, permitted to, to make one loan signing with a maximum wage of £10,000 a week. Does that, is that what you've heard as well? Is, do you think that's correct? Possibly, yeah. Um, I, think that I, I think you're correct in saying that the goalkeeper position isn't the strongest area of the squad. I think that Lee Camp, certainly earlier on in the season, he did make a few errors that cost Blues goals. I would say that he did kind of improve slightly sort of from October time up until around Christmas. Um, But of course, that performance against Middlesbrough would have raised a few doubts again. So I think there's, um, he he has had difficulties at times camp. I'd quite like Blues to have um, an up and coming goalkeeper, somebody like, I look at Daniel Everson um, at Oldham, I don't know whether we could get him on loan from Leicester or something like that. But Mm. um, certainly, um, I, I, I do feel that the goalkeeper position is an area to address. And yet there, there, were, there were Blues fans in our mentions basically saying that while we agree, uh, if there is this, this sort of rule that we can only make one signing, actually uh, it's less likely to be a goalkeeper, perhaps more likely to be a, a creative central midfielder. Do you think that's fair enough? Possibly, yeah. Um, I, I think that I like uh, Gary Gardner in terms of um, what we're trying to do this season, which is consolidation. I think he brings tenacity to the team. I think he presses well at times. Um, and I, I can see why he's endeared himself to the majority of Blues fans. But what I would say, um, and I thought this was a, a slight problem in the second half um, against Middlesbrough, is that when opposing teams basically put a lot of men behind the ball um, and nullify that space for Jota, Magoma, Adams and Djokovic, I think that's where we need someone with the quality to distribute and to offer something a little bit different. Um, I think that the reason that I prioritise um, Kieftenbeld is that I think that he can do what Gary Gardner can do, but on turbocharge. He's got that real pace about him um, and he's got the salmon to do it for 90 minutes. Whereas I think with Gary Gardner and, and Craig Gardner, I'm not necessarily sure that they're quite at the same level in terms of ball winning. And that's why I would, if we, if you know, if funds were in a slightly better position um, off the field, I think that maybe a slight improvement in terms of the technical aspects of the midfield, I think that would be preferable personally. I do quite like the uh, Gardner for Gardner halftime substitution that we saw on the, on the weekend. I know they're not identical twins, but that's that's what it sort of seems <laughs> like. They're exactly the same player, so we'll play one for half and one for the other half and, and keep the legs fresh. Uh, Gab, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for all your insight on uh, Borough and also 
on Birmingham, the, t- the team that you support, and we, we wish you and Blues uh, much joy. We hope that Shea Adams will stay and, and continue to form that partnership with Djokovic. And um, just, uh, just let the listeners know where they can find you. I'd be astonished if there's any that aren't already following you as, as one of the key personnel uh, when it comes to, to online discussion of the EFL. But you are at underscore football lab on Twitter. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me. I've really enjoyed the chat. So for our next guest, I've pulled out of the hat, David Anderson. David is a Brentford fan. He is a great friend of the podcast and he's also a a friend of mine. So uh, delighted to have David on. Aside from that, he is a contributor to Be Sotted, uh, which many of you will know as the Brentford podcast, the Brentford fan website as well. David's a a writer and he's been on the podcast as well. So a a real analytical mind and uh, very much in keeping with his club, Brentford, which is great. It's been such a good few weeks, David, which off the back of what came before, uh, eight weeks or so before, I imagine has been a a hugely welcome um, return to, to, to some semblance of form, culminating in one of the best performances of the season at Griffin Park on Saturday, beating Stoke 3-1. Uh, yes, indeed, Ali. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for that introduction as well. Yeah, going to the Stoke match on Saturday, it was, a, it was a brilliant performance. There's been a number of people that have called it the performance of the season. It was back to the old bees. It was, it was fast, it was intense, and Stoke were really limited to nothing. What's interesting is you say back to the old bees, fast and intense, short passing, pressing, and yet... Uh, the the great sort of uh, characteristic of the turnaround under Frank and the great catalyst to the outsider anyway has been the change of shape. So it's not the old bees in terms of four two three one. It's something a bit different. So I'll, I'll, that's what I, I really wanted to get some insight on this new shape that bees have gone with over the last few weeks to great success. The old bees in the sense of of how we sort of punish teams and how we how we suppress the other teams. But going back to the shape, yeah. So. So Frank's been quite clever here. We've spoken previously about Smith's lack of pragmatism. Smith was a very attacking coach. I think some of the some of the Villa fans may say to you at the moment that they kind of undercoached defensively. But Frank has Frank has assessed it. He's looked at our problems. We were, we were conceding too many goals recently. Uh, Josh McKeck was sat in front of a two. So he has said that we're not going to continue like this. And uh, he switched it back to a back three. Uh, it's a three-four-three formation. It's quite it's quite clever. Sort of like wolves, sort of sort of wolves from seventeen eighteen. It is, it is. It's a, it's a hybrid of the wolves and the old Chelsea system. It's a little bit hybrid of those, but we'll call it the Brentford system. And <laughs> um, what essentially at the top line, the most basic thing Frank has done is he's removed uh, Josh McKechnie from the side, someone you'll know well, and uh, he's replaced him with Julian Jonvier. So Jonvier sits back in that back three. We've removed the deep line, deep line playmaker in McKechnie, and instead of McKechnie now we have this formidable centre back and. Yeah, I'll, I'll push on a bit more with Jean Vier. Jean Vier is actually probably one of the big keys to this turnaround. So he is a player that Brentford snapped up at the beginning of the season. Jean Vier played for Reims. He won League Deux. He was a player that Brentford identi- uh, identified, and we know how well they do they do that sort of stuff. But he won the, sec- uh, the second French division and came over, and there's probably good overlap between that division and, and the championship. We mm. probably underestimate how good that division is. There's um, the French League, only two teams go up and down, I believe. And so... In the third, fourth, fifth teams, you can have some very good players who just don't get the opportunity to go up into the top flight. So, Jean Vier did actually get promoted into the top flight last season. So, Brentford identified him, and watching him, he, he really does look like a real deal. He's, he's pretty much got everything as a defender. 
he plays in the centre of this back three. And since Frank moved to this formation, this 3-4-3, I mean, Brentford's defending has been formidable. They've locked down games. There's chances against have completely plummeted. There's nothing really going against the goal. And going to Stoke uh, on the weekend, they were limited to one Benekafomi uh, screamer. And uh, pretty much that was it. They had no other. They registered no other shots on target. There was one other shot that was blocked. But Brentford completely controlled the game, and it's it's mainly due to, well, yeah, sort of getting McEachran out of the side and swapping him with this formidable force in Jonlier. Yeah, that's interesting. McEachran clearly in one very specific skill of ball playing, and preferably without too much pressure on him. Uh, very much in you know some of the very high percentile of all footballers, but. He is one of those players that when, well, we've seen really in the first half of the season, didn't we, that playing in a in a team that doesn't have all of the ball and, and with a bit more pressure on him, both on the ball and defensively, um, it, it clearly wasn't working. So what, a, a very good switch from Frank. I wonder whether he, when he took charge, I wonder whether this was always his plan, something that he'd been sitting, waiting in the wings and maybe even said to Dean Smith on occasion, uh, that would be interesting to, to know, interesting to find out, or whether it was just such a, a reaction to what was happening uh, in that early spell under Frank when goals were being leaked uh, and results were going against uh, the team. I probably believe that he would have suggested it to Smith, but Smith would have been pretty firm in his in his way of playing and, and probably didn't take it on board. I, I think Jean-Vier coming back to fitness is key, though. I think Frank and maybe the club have looked at that and seen that as as a as a licence to go through at the back. The way the, their injuries worked uh, Barbe was covering out for Rico Hendry on the left. Uh, you you'd be reluctant to play all of your centre backs in one game, and uh, you need you need to cover other other areas. So I think it's worked out well for them in the sense of John Vier coming back in, being given license to play here. It, it'd be interesting to see what happens with Chris Meppham, who's missed the last four games um, through injury, I presume, uh, and and Conza, Jean Vier, and Barbe have been that back three. Um, but I wanted to talk a, a couple more topics, three more specifically. Just I'm, I'm, We're really fascinated on, on the podcast to talk about tactics when we can and, and to make them interesting, not just to fans of, of, of the team in question, but to others as well, because I think there's a lot of interest in it and potential uh, future opposition of Brentford. Uh, uh, fans can certainly um, take heed of this. But one player who seems to have done very well out of this is Rico Henry. Um, Henry, who uh, of course was was bought from Walsall a while ago now, is still so, so, so young, still eligible for the England under-21s. Um, and he is the left wing-back in this 3-4-3. Now, we've seen wing-backs in this formation uh, do incredibly well, possibly um, appear to be overperforming people like Victor Moses um, uh, and maybe Matt Doherty, perhaps at Wolves as well, because of the licence you get going forward. And it can produce some eye catching attacking numbers Henry it strikes me uh, David is is perfectly suited to this sort of uh, to this sort of formation because he's so good going forward and not to say that he's weak defensively but naturally as a fullback or a wingback it's great to have three centre backs because you've got one to cover you and you don't lose quite as many uh, quite as much presence in the middle so a bit more license for Henry and he's thriving oh he really is he really is uh, I think before before Brentford went to this formation I said privately to a friend that it's what needed to happen we need to go through at the back and we kind of discussed it and said that I don't think many players suit the system but Henry was someone that we absolutely thought would uh, against Stoke on the weekend he was pretty much unstoppable so 
Stoke never once got to grips with the fourth, uh, with the three-four-three. He was out on the left. He was in acres of space all game. It was the same with Dalsgaard on the right. Both wing backs were completely, they were completely open. They could be found each time. And Henry, Henry grew into the game. I, I think he started off probably quite shocked at how much space he had. His first couple <laughs> of touches were quite, quite surprising. I mean, he got out of his foot. He just ran and drove and drove, and then probably didn't realise he was on the edge of the box. And a couple of his early crosses were slightly overhit, but. As the game went on, yeah, I mean, he, he just sort of dominated that left-hand side. He was always in space. Not once did Stoke ever ever adjust their system or sort of try and pick him up. But then we lead to the goal. So at this stage, it's 2-1 and uh, second half. I think it was on 50 minutes, 50-something minutes. Henry, again, is, uh, he knows there's a space on that left-hand side and Sawyer's knocks around the corner and Rico picks up the ball and he sort of just drives forward and drives forward. And before he knows it, he's on the edge of the box. Gets past, uh, skips past Sawyer's, uh, sorry, Shawcross. And uh, unusually for Henry, because he is very left-footed, he sort of switches it onto his right and buries one into the bottom corner. And it just, it just capped off what was an, an incredible display. He, he really was. He really was looking great there. Yeah, very exciting for Bees fans, of course. And uh, the Bees hierarchy as well will be, I'm sure, focusing on his development and also potentially seeing pound signs because uh, it really does look like if he can stay fit, uh, he's the type of player that will be talked about uh, much, much more over the coming months and years. Um, uh, I I suppose... um, just a, a quick aside, because you've written for Sotted about this game and, and not just focusing on Bees, but on Nathan Jones's Stoke as well. As you were talking and, and talking about how much space the wingbacks had and how Stoke's system, uh, which I believe was the, the patented uh, Nathan Jones diamond straight up in his first game, that diamond in midfield struggling to, to find the right men maybe to, to, to stay with uh, the wingers with Ben Rama and Watkins also a threat drifting out wide at times, and, and that's kind of uh, just as you were talking, it, it flagged something interesting that I'm looking forward to keeping an eye on um, that formation and how much it will work in the championship. And just I say that because, with all due respect to League One fullbacks, I feel like at that level you can be relatively comfortable that if there's you know no formation is perfect, there's always going to be areas of the pitch where you can't cover fully. Um, probably in League One, I would I would suggest that you can be relatively comfortable if the opposition fullbacks are the ones who are open all of the time, and you're probably not too disappointed with that because they're least likely or less likely to hurt you than some of the attacking players. Not necessarily the case. The higher you go up with the modern fullback and many of the young fullbacks and wingbacks in the Championship that we've spoken about, like Rico Henry and Aaron's at Norwich and, and Lewis as well, it'd be really interesting to see if that becomes more of an issue for Stoke under Jones than it was for for Luton under Jones. And that was clearly very much in evidence uh, on Saturday. Of course, it might be that the personnel are just not used to it yet and that Jones will have have plans for this. But that was just something I was thinking of. I I just wanted to ask you about um, the midfield and then the, the the inside forwards. So um, we spoke, we have spoken a lot about B's midfield and, and the issues over the course of the season. Makocho and Sawyers are playing in, in the centre of this 3-4-3. How did they look on Saturday as a duo? Is there any concern that they might lack in any areas? Uh, those two, no concerns about them at all. So the pair of them on Saturday against Stoke, uh, they completely dominated the game. There was there was no sense that at any stage they were under any pressure. They were they were pretty formidable. Uh, I think the formation probably well it was weird. The formation probably helped them in the sense of whenever they did get the ball, they had the outlets out wide. They had the wing backs to feed. But 
those two together, yeah, pretty much, pretty much stifled all of what Stoke could offer. So Stoke had a three in the midfield, I'd say. It, it was quite, yeah, it, it was a three. It was Woods at the base. You probably had Allen just in front of him and then Klukas in the first half. And not at one stage did ever, either of those three look to outnumber Mococcio and Sawyers. And that probably is testament to how well Sawyers and Mococcio played, who were, who were exceptional, by the way. Uh, some of these fans... <laughs> Some of these fans have actually said that Nakoto display was probably one of the best they've seen at Griffin Park. But wow. in terms of what they actually do ball-wise, so you've got you've got two players. So we're removing McEachran from here, someone who actually gets the ball and delivery looks to he just looks for somebody in the final third or looks to progress the ball. Instead, we've now got two players who can do probably what McEachran does, but not slight, not as effectively. But they can also travel quickly with the ball. They can they can press the ball when they don't have possession, but they, they can transfer the ball into that final third with it at their feet. It's their energy as well. It was a fantastically fit performance. So another reason probably the, the upturn in form is is removing a McEachran from the side, somebody who regularly well, he he's regularly subbed, he regularly completes ninety minutes. Mokotra and Sawyers saw that game out with no problem. They were they were up and down, they were fit, they were dangerous and as a pair, they look they look to have everything. I think you've got Sawyers who's a slightly more attacking. He'll, he'll be the one that, that will play that first time ball forward, or he'll he'll spot something that Makocha may not. But Makocha's energy and his his desire, and yeah, he's got these really quick feet. Makocha's quite a hard person to describe, but I I just sort of describe him as uh, elegantly aggressive, which is <laughs> it's, it's probably quite bizarre to put those two together. But he has these yeah, these delightful quick feet, but. When he turns on the power and when he when he sort of drives, he's 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 really hard to stop. And I think the Stoke the Stoke midfielders will will know they're in a game on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. And the last part of the of the puzzle, because it's Mopai up front and he needs no introduction. But the the use of of the wingers, um, we probably don't call them that in this in this uh, situation. The inside forwards um, is probably how I would go. Ben Rama and Watkins. Um, ideally, the two that, that will be starting, that would be starting and did start on the weekend. Um, what's their positioning? What's their role within this 3-4-3? I note, for example, Ben Rama had four key passes on Saturday. Uh, neither of them did a huge amount of dribbling, which seems surprising. Um, and Ben Rama has also took four shots, which was the joint most in the team. Watkins only one, but we know that generally he's a man that likes to, to take a shot. So these guys... Um, in my head, now offering more of a, of a goal threat, perhaps than they did in the last uh, in the last system. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think Watkins has been quite interesting this season. He's uh, he struggled with injury, but that's, uh, that's it's probably quite known now. He, he's been playing through an injury, and he's not looked himself. But Saturday was probably the first time where it didn't look like well, he didn't look one hundred percent. He looked probably closer to eighty in my eyes. He he was probably about eighty five percent. Yeah, so what he does, basically, with that three at the front, so they do start quite wide, so they they are wingers in the beginning of a, in the in the sort of setup. They'll try and sort of make combinations with the left-backs, uh, left wing-backs. But as soon as the ball's on the other side, opposite to them, one of them will drift inside and look to get around Morpai, so it sort of turns into a two. So if the ball's on the right, Ben Rama's joining with Morpai, making it a two centrally. And Morpai will drop, and then it will be either one of Watkins or Ben Rama who are the furthest forward. It's, it's such a smart three. It's not really limited to, to wingers or sort of inside formers. It's very flexible, and they exploited, they exploited the state back line immensely. Um, but Watkins was very interesting. I think he was probably the one that did turn the performance in the sense of Brentford have looked a little bit like they've been carrying him in the, uh, in the last few games. 
Banks spoke well and he spoke a lot about the defensive display, displays have been fantastic. They've been really good, limiting sides to nothing. But in the final, well, in the attacking sense, we've been slightly blunt and we've not really created as much we, as we probably deserved and probably should have made should have made more of the ball in advanced areas. But with with Watkins looking a lot fitter, it didn't look it didn't look like Brentford were carrying a person in the final third of this game. It, it looked like we had three fit, dangerous strikers, three fit, dangerous forwards, and. And the interplay between between the three of them was was really scintillating. Yeah, really exciting stuff, uh, David. Uh, um, it's been fantastic talking to you. This three four three or three four two one, however you want to set it up, is something that I'm. Uh, I, I just I don't I don't know. It, it's something that I really really enjoy watching. It's a system that I think has brought success both uh, with Chelsea in sixteen seventeen and Wolves in the Championship seventeen eighteen. Uh, and and possibly could still be um, quite an quite a good way if you can do it properly if you've got the right personnel to, um, to 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 make some waves in this league and of course since adopting that against Bolton Brentford unbeaten uh, and moving up towards uh, mid table now they're in seventeenth um, still seven points off twelfth which is Aston Villa so top half still a long way away but presumably you know I I, I mean we kept saying as if we were you know we kept saying. It's not looking good for Brentford, but we're still fairly confident that they won't be dragged into the relegation battle. And, and the more defeats came, the, the more resolutely you had to stick to your guns. Well, I can only imagine as a supporter, you were going through that times 100. So just uh, uh, positive vibes. Where do you see this? Uh, where do you see bees finishing? Well, I think if you asked me a few weeks ago, I'd have been a little more, a little negative. But yeah, since this formation has been adopted, I think that's the only way to look really is up the table. I will add though, Stoke, if Stoke lose their next game and Brentford wins, Brentford are one point behind Stoke, which is quite impressive to think about. I mean, the form they're on now with the six games, uh, six unbeaten, I, I, I don't see the gap as, as that formidable anymore. I think looking at the table, I go, Brentford can look at sort of 11th, 10th. They, they, they can do that. I think they can look up the table and look at that. Look at that sort of position. Playoffs, obviously, we know are way beyond them. But the top half, bottom top half, I'd say, around 10th, 11th. That should be the target now, I think. Push on from here. Nice. And and final word on uh, Nathan Jones, the new manager at Stoke. You saw his, his first bit of action as Stoke manager and, and, you know, you follow the league's pretty closely like we do what did you what did you think of of that appointment were you looking at a, a team that you your bees will be competing with 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 a bit of jealousy or, or and what did you see on Saturday <laughs> yeah I, I think it's a fantastic appointment I I think I wrote in the, in the piece I did for the started that Jones is a he's, he's a real up-and-coming manager he's really thoughtful he he has his system um he'll be a great fit for Stoke Stoke need a new identity uh they need they need something they need a, they need to I think I said that they need to sort of rekindle some of that Luton fire they're they're kind of rudderless at the moment and they're probably just caught under the cloud of power but I, I think Jones would be fantastic something that did uh, surprise me was how much Jones actually does look like Rowett in person so I hope that doesn't count against him <laughs> he is a spitting image for Rowett which is quite funny but tactically I think he'll be brilliant he'll he'll get them further up the pitch it was it was probably hard for him on Saturday he. He could have taken easy options, sort of sat in the stands and let Bilat take over that. But he he put himself on the line. He went out there in a couple of days training. But Stoke, to me, that didn't look like a Nathan Jones team. That looked like a Gary Rowett team who were 
yeah, very much stuck in their own ways. Mm. They, were, they were very deep. They, I, I don't think, yeah, from what I've seen, Jones, they don't, they don't play like that. The fullbacks were, the fullbacks were non-existent. They, they weren't sort of pushing on. They, they were slow. They were poor. It, it didn't feel like a Jones side. And, and from what I have seen of Jones, Stoke should be very excited about having him as a coach. Some Brentford fan thinks think that that should have been our appointment. That should have been who we went for. But I, I don't think he'd have fitted Brentford. Actually, I think he suits the club looking to looking to change, looking to change what they're doing, and uh, sort of yeah, sort of move back to a more attacking style of play, which is what you need to get out of the championship. I think I think Stoke made a big mistake with Rowett, and I, I'm not sure they've made the same mistake again. They've they've gone for the complete opposite, and uh, yeah, I, I expect big things. And actually, just one more. Thomas Frank, terrible, terrible start. Tough circumstances uh, with injuries, but also with uh, a traumatic time off the pitch for Brentford. Um, I'm not saying that there were too many of these people, but there were certainly some people who thought it would be best uh, to make the change of manager after he'd only had uh, six or eight games, whatever it was. Uh, Have you seen B's fans accept that that was not necessarily the right decision or are there some people still sticking to their guns in that sense? <laughs> I think I think on the final whistle on Saturday, I, I think um, there was a massive release. I think everybody, when it felt like everybody in the ground had, had come to terms with Thomas Frank. This was a, this was someone who, who knows what he's doing and he's, he, you could you could sort of see a future with him. There was a there was a bond created on Saturday. It felt like it all came together. I, I, I don't think everybody's convinced. No, no, I don't think they are, but Maybe they're looking sort of too much in results. Uh, Frank's very different to Smith. I, I think there's my own personal views is there's a lot more to Frank than, than Smith. I think Smith has his way. I, I think Frank has a more holistic approach to the game. He'll, I, we've spoken about it before. It, I, I, I see much more pragmatism in, in Frank, and I think he can understand opposition better. He'll he'll adapt his ways to sort of counteract opposition while still keeping his own game on the opposite, yeah, affecting the game his own way. So. Fans are not. I wouldn't say they're all on side. I, I think they're they're slowly coming around. We're on a we're on a nice run here. Uh, not not lost in five. I think. Yeah, I, I think people are coming around to the idea of Frank. Yeah, let's not get carried away too much. Uh, he acquitted himself. Uh, he did acquit himself very well on EFL Matters on Thursday night. And uh, it's just fantastic to see smiles back on the faces at, at Griffin Park. David, thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful insight. I'm sure everyone else would agree. Uh, we'll make sure that your Twitter handle is in the pinned tweet with the links to this podcast. So uh, if you're listening, David writes about bees, but he he writes great stuff just in general about everything. So uh, a great Twitter follow uh, and a great man. Thanks very much for joining us, mate. No problem. Thanks a lot for having me. Next up, it was time to talk to George about League One. It was a, a good day in League One. There was big games, as we know, uh, at the top of the table. Sunderland and Luton ended at 1-1. We had a few guys watching this one, as you might expect. Jamie says, fantastic performance and reaction from Luton after an incredibly difficult week. Could have been two up inside the first 10 minutes, and then they scored against the run of play. Um not sure Sunderland fans would necessarily agree with that, to be quite honest. From what we heard, uh, that game really did go this way and that, which is not necessarily surprising, something we've seen in Sunderland games throughout the season and, and continue to do so now. Uh, a lot of uh, complaints about the refereeing from, from both sides, and it was uh, ostensibly a Premier League ref in charge as well, so that was disappointing to hear. Uh, I did think that there was something quite funny about Chris Maguire and Danny Hilton both getting sent off for, for sort of non-footballing incidents, if you will. 
uh, Oxford fans will uh, look back on their time in yellow fondly and, and remember that spikiness that does um, sort of, uh, well, I was going to say threaten to undermine their play. It does when they get sent off, but it's also a very important part of both of those guys and, and, and what fantastic players they are at League One and previously League Two level. We also had Portsmouth losing at home to Blackpool. We've seen this from Pompey a few times this season, struggling at home against teams that sit deep. Bob was at this one and, and said that, yeah, uncharacteristically sloppy at the back from Pompey and they missed Thompson's drive and spark. Credit to Blackpool, they compressed the space for Pompey to play in and the fullbacks dealt expertly with Lowe and Curtis. Chris Long got the goal in that one just a few days or maybe a week or so after being released from Fleetwood amid some words from Joey Barton, words of warning and, and, and words that when you read between the lines, you don't have to read particularly closely between the lines. You have to say that the relationship clearly deteriorated there and there were a few parting shots, I think, from both Long and from Barton. So for Long to go to Blackpool, local rivals of Fleetwood, and to score the winner away at the league leaders, Pompey, uh, on his first appearance was a, a, a nice message from Chris Long and a, and a nice moment. Barnsley were fantastic against Bradford, I think it's fair to say. That was a game that we thought, this is a, a test of, of Bradford's, the new look Bradford, the newly confident Bradford, but Barnsley wiped the floor with them. Nathan says, Barnsley brilliant after a fairly poor opening 15 minutes. Movement and passing was a joy to watch at times. Could have scored more. There's no better midfield duo in League One than McGeehan and Mowat. And Sam said the scoreline flattered Bradford, who were dreadful. The Reds were terrific, though. McGeehan getting man of the match, really flourishing now, keeping Kenny Dougal out the side. Watch out for our second goal, best League One team goal you'll see all season. Hard to disagree with that. It was uh, fantastic, fantastic to watch. What else did we see? Scunthorpe making it four out of four. Four wins now in a row. They beat Walsall away. Charlie, a Scunthorpe fan, said it was a scrappy, even affair. Um, but Scunthorpe scored a couple of nice goals. Optimism building. He's daring to dream about the playoffs like Barnsley did in 2016-17. In I, I, I told him on Twitter to behave with any sort of playoff chat. And George will tell us why uh, that is going to be difficult for any team down the bottom of League One in just one second. Uh, Asher Walsall fan said it was a dire match. Scunthorpe defended the better, which was the difference. There's a, a, a bit of concern amongst Walsall fans. Fitzwater has gone back to West Brom. Uh, Martin has gone as well. Reinforcements needed ASAP. Matt said to us, May the 5th cannot come quick enough. So not good news there at Walsall. Coventry and Wimbledon drew 1-1. Burton lost at home to Gillingham. Maybe a bit of a hangover from that uh, tough day at the Etihad in midweek. But a great win for Gillingham, uh, who always just do enough to maintain their position above the relegation zone, but rarely seem to kick on. Uh, Peterborough had a good home win against Rochdale. They needed that one. Home form not always good this season. But a goal from Lee Tomlin, who's recently returned to the club. And a nice finish from George Cooper again. Hasn't played many minutes this season, Cooper, after signing from Crew. Uh, I spoke about how I'd like to see him drop down to the bottom half of League One or, or League Two, get a loan, play some football. Anyway, he got the chance for Posh and scored a fantastic goal. Charlton looking really strong. They beat Shrewsbury 3-0. Lyle Taylor, superb in this game. Carlin Grant uh, not far behind him. Both of them on the score sheet. Plymouth got a sensational win against Southend. And uh, we should talk about Plymouth first because that is a massive, massive win and, and two wins on the bounce. Uh, that game, that win rather, rather overshadowed by uh, a goal from behind the halfway line from a, a, a youth player, Charlie Kelman, making his debut for Southend. He's got 61 goals in the youth team last year. He's already been part of a 
US national team under 18 camp, but he's half English as well. So one to keep an eye on. South end really poor, says Ben. No attacking outlet. Injury still hurting us, but Plymouth were better than expected. So maybe some interest there from Plymouth Wickham. An amazing, amazing turnaround against Doncaster. That's three injury time winners over the last three months. They do just have the most amazing character and and that's what's keeping them in mid-table because it's been a tough run before then. Fleetwood would tune up against Oxford, uh, but Yellows came back two goals to level things and that was an important point for them because, as George Ellick phoned in to tell us earlier, the League One relegation battle is absolutely terrifying. Now, it's obviously been a bit of a, a peculiar pod today, getting so many uh, new uh, voices on. And that's really because uh, George, on the final day of his of his holiday, uh, um, hopefully very well rested, he joins me because, uh, you know, he, he couldn't be left out completely. But it feels a little bit like you're a guest on your own podcast here, George, which I feel a bit bad on. But um, all good in South Africa on final day. Yes, mate. Coming to you from a, a car park in Cape Town, uh, the flight in about four hours but um, as I look up at Table Mountain what else is there to talk about except for Oxford's slow demise and a League One relegation fight I doubt anyone ever said that before but uh, I am literally looking at the peak of Table Mountain now from a car park so I thought you only loitered in car parks in England but it turns out that hobby extends to your uh, holidays <laughs> as well look um, I said to you you know I'm, I'm desperate to get you on just for, for a quick hit um, otherwise it's far too much of me and I said why don't you pick one topic from across the three divisions to talk about and you fired straight back with League One relegation battle so I guess the first question for me has got to be why is that the most interesting topic to talk about today? Because if I'd replied saying Oxford you probably would have said you think about something else um, and it's basically <laughs> the same thing because I'm getting pretty concerned uh, if you're looking it's a, it's a pretty rare situation in League One at the moment where teams we thought were going to be uh, the cannon fodder, the, the whipping boys, are actually turning it around. I mean, despite Bradford's poor performance and defeat at Barnsley, we can definitely say they've improved. Uh, Scunthorpe maintain their winning ways away at Walsall. I'm still convinced that AS Wimbledon are, are too short for relegation. I think the performances are, are, are still pretty good. Um, unlucky just to come away from Coventry with a point. And then you look at Plymouth, who, who are also rallying six points from the last two league games as well. So suddenly it's teams who are well out of it early on in the season who've got to be in trouble. You and I recorded a prediction table just a couple of weeks ago that had Oxford in 10th position. I now think that we are massive candidates for relegation and I'm, and I'm really, really concerned that it's going to take a huge turnaround either from us or a couple of those teams I meant to really slip away in order to prevent that from happening. Um, you're looking at the likes of Walsall, who probably two months ago would have thought that a, a playoff challenge is more likely than, than relegation. I think that they are really, really in trouble now as well. Um, and, I mean, Nick Goff, uh, for those of you who don't follow him. He's a, he's a fantastic follower, whether you're a, you're a better or not. And he tweeted the other day, mocking people who care about the Premier League when uh, about 12 teams can still get relegated from League One. And that's exactly how it is at the minute. I think in the EFL, there can't be many bigger stories than, than 12 teams separated by such few points. And the teams at the bottom end of the table, generally, are the ones that, that are making up ground further up. Um, it's, it's unbelievably exciting. And I, yeah, if I was backing teams to go down, I think that uh, the ones I've mentioned, it's, it's the likes of Warsaw, the likes of Oxford, who probably thought they were safe going into the Christmas period, look really, really... Un- so you've got, basically, from the bottom up, uh, Wimbledon looking a bit better under Wally Downs, four points behind Plymouth, uh, two wins from two. They're level on points with Bradford, who he said were in a false position and, and could be looking at a top-half finish. Uh, and they're level in points with Oxford. So that's the bottom four. Yellows winless in their last five. Um, above Oxford, 
Bristol Rovers at one point ahead, that is. Uh, again, five unbeaten under their new manager, Graham Coughlin. Then it's Rochdale with four consecutive defeats, two points ahead of Bristol Rovers. They've played a game more than everyone else. They're level on points with Shrewsbury, who have barely scored a goal in open play for the last month or two uh, and, and who haven't necessarily had the boost under Sam Ricketts that we expected. Gillingham continuing to be inconsistent as ever. They're on 31, one point above Shrewsbury, one point above, above them. Walsall, who you're very worried about, one point then up to Scunthorpe, who have won four in four, having been a huge worry. And then two points up to Accrington, Wickham, Southend, Burton and Fleetwood. That takes us to 10th position. Fleetwood, for example, eight points above the relegation zone. But you're saying no one's really, really safe. I mean, from the sounds of it, uh, Walsall can be concerned from what you're saying. Rochdale, I think we've got to put in the mix, although it's potential Definitely. for them to get a, a, a new manager bounce at some point. But in terms of Oxford, what is it that's changed your mind so much since we recorded those podcasts just before Christmas? Is it the other teams or is it something to do with, with Yellow's performance as well? Uh, I mean, if you look at the teams that we've dropped points against, it's Bristol Rovers, Plymouth, um, Southend and Fleetwood. They're all, all teams who are occupying the positions you just mentioned. Um, everyone is aware of the need for a striker. I'd like to take credit for the comeback against Fleetwood, having you know, basically ridiculed and panned Jamie Mackey as a, as a striker coming off the bench unfit and setting up a goal <laughs> and grabbing the equaliser. Um, but I watched that game. It was, it was a poor game between two poor sides, really. I think Fleetwood have now dropped 19 points from winning positions this season, which is absolutely ridiculous. It means that they surely have to come into contention when you're talking about relegation as well, despite the fact that they're currently in the top half, just eight points clear with a massive mental fragility as well. Um, if you're looking at the game, um, Fleetwood's keeper didn't have a save to make. Oxford's only two went in, um, although there were both kind of high-quality chances. Simon Eastwood made two very good saves in the second half as well. Uh, same old Oxford's, uh, despite a lot of possession, um, that rarely turned into um, chances. And they're, they're just generally a very easy team to play against. Um, you're watching the flat-back four with, with, with Jamie Hansen and Josh Ruffles playing as full-backs. I mean, they're both centre midfielders by trade. They have no attacking intent to overlap with the wingers. Playing without flat back four makes it so easy for clubs, uh, for the opposition, just to play through them. And you saw both Fleetwood goals were just so easy to create. Uh, Curtis Nelson woefully out of form as well. It's a massive January, and you're already hearing Carl Robinson saying he has to shift on players. The likes of Ricky Holmes uh, looks set to go back to Sheffield United with his injury troubles, which is a huge blow. And they're having to do that in order to free up the space for these players. Uh, it's a massive couple of weeks. I, I, I mean, having watched the games recently, um, I, I basically can't see how Oxford, in their current state, um, the way the team is playing, the way the team is set up, and the personnel in, in key positions, those positions being full-back, uh, creative midfield, and up top, I, I, just, I, I really struggle to see where the points are going to come from. Not good. Not good at all, George. Yeah, it's, it's depressing. But having said that, I, I do think that there's so much talent there um, you know, Gavin White and Marcus Brown have spoken a lot about um, Curtin is just performing massively under his actual level of ability and a, a couple of the right signings would surely turn it around um, oh, I'm worried to hear you say that mate I'm worried to hear you say that we, we, we specifically said in those podcasts that it's just so difficult relying on that sentence you know the right signings have to be made to turn things around and we know what the we know that it's not out of the question but we also know that if you're looking at two or three or four guys to come in then the likelihood of that happening gets even smaller. Definitely, but, but, but the, the massive key with Oxford is, is up top. 
you're effectively playing with, with a guy like Jamie Mackey playing up top, who let's remember is basically played as a right winger for most of his career. He hasn't got the, the, the striker's instinct to get into positions needed to score goals. So if you're playing with him as a target man, although he was obviously brilliant when he came on uh, uh, on the weekend, you're effectively playing without anyone to get on the end of the crosses. Jordan Graham may well be playing right wing. We had about 12 corners on the weekend. But if he's putting balls in when no one's there in the six-yard box, it's going to make no difference. So it's actually just getting a striker in, a guy who knows how to play the position. It's, it's almost fairly irrelevant if he's any good or not. It's just understanding how to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, I saw, I think Oxford's price from relegation at the moment, it's around 9-4. to four. Um, Yeah, it looks, it looks big to me. Um, quite sad to hear you talk like that and, and on the final day of what's been such a wonderful holiday for you as well but in, in, more, positive, <laughs> in more positive news we're very excited to, to get you back on home soil uh, it's, been a, a, it's been a fun few weeks really for the podcast just because it's been a bit different to the norm but very much looking forward to getting back to the reg- regularly scheduled uh, podcasting and uh, looking forward to talking to you again on Thursday for a betting show yeah, mate, looking forward to, well, I'm not looking forward to coming back, but looking forward to sitting alongside you again, I must say. League two to finish us off. And before I, I give a very brief roundup, we've got to start with Berry four Milton Keynes Dons three. Before the weekend, it was the biggest game in League two. It lived up to its billing. In fact, it was the best game in English football this weekend. Gregor was at the game. Gregor Robertson joins us to talk about it. Here's what he had to say. Gregor, you're at games across the country, across all divisions, uh, every weekend so far this season. Where does Berry 4, MK Dons 3 rank uh, in terms of the games that you've seen this season? Uh, it's right up there, definitely. Um, it was, the game had it all, absolutely all. It, thrilling comeback, goals, missed penalties, uh, wonderful free kick from Dean Lewington, uh, touchline fracas towards the end. <laughs> It was, uh, it was getting heated, and it was you could feel the sort of the energy in the stadium, and and Bury fans absolutely loving what's happening uh, in recent weeks there. Pens taken, pens missed, pens scored. Um, yeah. you know, quality technical play on show, uh, and two teams in Bury and MK Dons both playing uh, three at the back. I wondered if I could just ask you to start on 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 the tactical battle before we get into uh, the wonderful goals and the various different swings of the pendulum. Um, you know, you start the game and you want to get an idea of how the two teams are setting up. So what did you see from, from Berry and from MK Dons in that sense? Well, yeah, Berry uh, played three at the back and you had uh, Neil Dans holding midfield. And really, apart from that, everyone else had attacking licence, um, which is made for an entertaining game. You had Jay uh, O'Shea, really talented player. He's, he's playing a little bit deeper uh, under low this season, but he has licence to drive forward and uh, really creative player. Good at turning up in the box at, at, at the right time as well. Um, Danny Mayer has a almost a free role really, and a player of his talents uh, should have. I think <laughs> he was he was outstanding, really, really wonderfully poised player. Um, lovely delicate touch, and, and defenders are just terrified to to confront him any time around the box or if he if he dribbles into the box with the ball because he's ball's always under control and he's and he can he can turn on a sixpence and get a shot off or he can pick a lovely little pass. Um so yeah, I mean and Maynard leading lead leading the line and, and Don Telford who I've not really seen much of actually. He was in Byron Moore's often played the season but Tom uh, Don Telford was was really impressive. Very very quick uh, showed a clean pair of heels to the MK Don's back line for the for Burry's second goal to get the to set the comeback alive, um, and it really all you say about Burry is is 
apart from the back three and 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 Dan's in the holding midfield role, uh, everyone else has got great license to to, to attack. So and, and you've got Nicky Adams, uh, sort of all the way down the right flank, don't you? Someone who, who yeah. is a, is formerly been very much an out and out winger uh, to my eyes, but. Does he does he have any problems on the defensive side of things, or have they got a balance where he's got cover if needed? No, I think they do balance it well. Like I say, that Dan's is somebody who's got a bit of experience, and he can he can switch across each each side of the pitch. Adams Adams has has always been a really hard working wing. I've played against him many a time, and and uh, he's not someone who would let you get away from him if you were to bomb down the line as a fullback as I was <laughs> um so I think he has he has got that that side of his game as well and um but the the amount that Burry are piling forward it's not really it wasn't really an issue at all on Saturday um I think he don't scored from two two set pieces uh and I, I think Burry were fully deserving of of, of the victory they, they certainly enjoyed a greater share of possession um, and looked, looked more of a threat going forward. So were you, I suppose it, it's hard to say this, this is a team in MK Dons that were 3-1 up away from home against a very, very strong side at one point, but uh, were you disappointed with MK Dons? Uh, um, Paul Tisdale, very much known as a tactician and one of the best around at this level uh, and, and not really able to combat, to counteract Berry's clear threats uh, and also... Um, yeah, to, to keep them at bay, especially once already ahead. Yeah, I mean, you look at that and you think they're sort of three one up and uh, looking pretty comfortable. And and they they started the second half very well indeed. Uh, got the third goal and and you thought that was that you thought that was that. But they, they 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 did not stem the sort of wave 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 after wave of, of attack from from Bury at all. Um, and they couldn't really cope with with the the, the sheer volume of bodies and numbers uh piling forward and 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 they have pace in the team as well. I mean Mayor Mayor is is the creative spark but um Telford Telford like I say he had he showed real pace to to get that, that second goal and and a lot of the time there, there's some body would get forward and, and, and MK Dons would look fairly compact but may, if you have Mayor or, or O'Shea around the edge of the box they, they have the ability to pick passes and 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 find runners and and uh, and and it was, it was really hard for them to to stop that. MK Dons have have had a, an interesting season. They've actually lost four of their last eight league games, uh, having lost only one uh, in their first eighteen before then. And what you can see if you look down their list of results is that to start of the season, at the start of the season rather, uh, defensively uh, fantastic. But going forward, they weren't scoring that many goals. They didn't score two goals in a game between opening day and uh, the 2nd of October. And then the goals started to flow a bit more as, as Healy and Anike and Agard started to click. But in recent weeks, um, a, a bit more leaky at the back, which is um, a bit surprising. I know they've had some uh, defensive personnel out injured and, and more Taylor was back in the side on the weekend. But uh, of course, more generally, you've seen this uh, incredible game of League Two football and, uh, you know, <laughs> Just, just sort of flies in the face of any sort of lingering stereotypes about football in in that division. Absolutely, yes. There was two teams who endeavoured to play in the right way and and uh, made for a thoroughly entertaining uh, game. I, I would say that MK Dons still created chances of their own. Uh, Chuck Zanicki hit the hit the crossbar uh, with a header. I think that was at three one as well. So the game would have been out of sight then. Um, and they have got. A, Gilby, Gilby was impressive. I thought he made some 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 good runs from midfield. Um, 
and Anika is, is 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 a huge presence for them. He's he uh, he's someone I played with at Crew Alexandra actually, and um, for the size and stature of him, he's a great technician. Uh, just always lacked a little, that little bit of pace, but um, I think I think he's a real threat in league, at League Two level, and, and certainly the, the the league above as well. So I think I think with him him and the team, they, they will score goals, and and uh, I think. I was thinking about it afterwards. I think it's going to be difficult to to see who who's going to break into that top three now. I think Mansfield have, have had a little bit of a wobble, mm. um, but they would be the team I would pick at the moment. Um, I mean, MK Don's two points behind Berry uh, with two games in hand. Lincoln, games of in hand, course, yes. at the top. Berry second now, and MK Don's two points behind, as I say, with two games in hand. Then you've got Colchester forty six. Mansfield 45 again with two games in hand and Carlisle 45 as well it does feel like Mansfield are the threat but from a Berry and MK Don's point of view I mean look Berry have forced their way into the top two now and 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 they've just grown and grown and grown throughout the season after such a a traumatic last season getting relegated from League One and and I should have said earlier, really, but you know, you go to these games as part of uh, of your role as the journeyman, uh, um, writing a column for the Times each week about the game that you've gone to, uh, and 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 the theme of this one was was about the resurgence of Berry. You, you touched on the change of ownership and the difficulties they've had in the last few years off the pitch as well, um, and and I just wondered if you could sort of describe to to the listeners and to myself that the the atmosphere around the place, which hasn't been so good in previous years, how did it feel there at the moment? I felt great. I mean, even before the before the game, I, uh, I was speaking to some supporters and and they were they were really thrilled with the with the, the entertainment value of the football this season and you know probably the top scorers in the league um and they've been impressed with with Ryan Lowe I think too I mean again Lowe's someone who I I played against many times in my career and and he was a, a real nuisance to play against he he, uh, he had that kind of reputation someone he really didn't like no one liked to play against but I, I see him as someone who who could probably motivate a group of players and it looks that way. It looks like he's he's getting the most from from a squad that was was put together quite quite expensively actually. We should should not forget. But um he did have to do some wheeling and dealing in the summer and, and he made some some good signings. Um and 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 the the whole the whole change of ownership I think it has lifted the mood a little bit because um Stuart Day, the the, the previous owner was kind of shooting shooting for the moon a little bit. I think he, you know, he was talking about the championship and um, and it never came to pass. Uh, the new owner, there's not that much known about him from a business standpoint. Uh, so I think some fans be keen to learn a little bit more about where he's made his money and and how much money he has. But he's he's saying all the right things. He's already set up a company called uh, Burry Heritage, which he's, he intends to put the put the, the ground and the land surrounding uh, Gig Lane into that so it's safe. Um, Stuart Day was mortgaged that heavily over the years, uh, over his tenure to, to raise funds and which he pumped into the squad. So I think really they want a little bit more of a, uh, a little bit more prudence from, from the new owner. And I think if that, if they have to live with a couple of years in League Two um, or who knows? Who knows what could happen under Ryan Lowe? But I think they just want the sort of the safety of their football club insured first and foremost. Yeah, it's a fascinating one, isn't it? Because you can absolutely see that, and yet there must be uh, such excitement about potential promotion now, more than ever, having moved uh, into second place and gone above these teams, and and having 
uh, you know, beaten from behind an MK Don side that we were talking about as, as you know, equals of, of Lincoln and, and arguably the best team in the league just uh, two months ago. Uh, and, and it'll be fascinating to see if they can keep some of their talent. I mean, you talk about Mayer and O'Shea. These are players who you could easily see playing uh, right at the top of League One, if not in the championship, um, in Mayer's case. Uh, and Maynard, who probably could and should be scoring goals in League One at the moment as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he was... He was an astute sign, and I think uh, he's obviously had some issues with with injuries over the over the last few seasons. And uh, he hit the ground running, and and he was deservedly given a contract extension. I think O'Shea has uh, assigned an extra year, so it looks like he'll be staying. Mm. Um, and like you say, Mayor is the one. I think if if they hold on to him, then they're, they're definitely going to have a chance because he was that was one of the best in, individual performances I've seen this season. Love that! A great insight into Berry Four MK Don Three. Just before. Uh, we let you go. I just wondered, I'm going to break from tradition. We don't really talk about anything aside from the EFL, but uh, another column that you've written that, that came out uh, this morning, I want you to, to explain why I would say the words former US goalkeeper and formerly of Everton, <laughs> Tim Howard, um, part owner of Dagenham and Redbridge, uh, you know, in the National League. What is that all about? Yeah, that's the that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I went down to meet uh, Tim Howard, uh, Peter B. Freund, and Craig Ugner, who are three of a seven-strong uh, American consortium who who saved Dagenham Redbridge really from from uh, financial peril um, in September. That that deal was completed. So um, uh, yeah, I met them, and and they all seem really enthusiastic. Um, Good credentials. Uh, Peter Freund has a share in the in the New York Yankees. Uh, he, along with Tim Howard, uh, has set up a, a new um, USL franchise called Memphis Nine Hundred One. So they've they've got a, an American soccer team as well, um, and they also own some some uh, minor league baseball baseball clubs. So I think they're, they're certainly a, a great passion for sport, and uh, and they they were interested in. And getting involved uh, in English football and the sort of unique atmosphere, and and they're saying a lot of positive things. They've they've, they've made some improvements to the ground. Uh, they've given Peter Taylor some some additional funds because he had a very young, inexperienced squad who obviously started the season very poorly. And um, but they've they've improved. They're, they've climbed climbed the table, and I think they're looking to next season. And I would not be surprised at all to see them um, back in the EFL in the in the next year or two. That's, uh, that's really think... yeah really interesting we, there are so many teams whose uh whose owners in non-league have, have pumped a lot of money into the playing staff and and occasionally have made it unsustainable which can be a, a big worry for those clubs so i'm glad to hear you you say that you know to start with they've been focusing on on facilities and on more sort of infrastructure things that that is a, a good sign so far yes no the uh they certainly are, are making all the right noises and they they, they heard the fans forum on on Friday evening, and and uh, heard 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 the questions of, of supporters, and they travelled up to to Salford for the FA Trophy game, which I believe they lost two 0 on, on Saturday. And there was a, I suppose there would have been a, a reunion with uh, some ex Manchester United players there. Um, so yeah, no, I think I think uh, it's definitely from from where Dagenham have come from, uh, and the, the sort of financial dis- distress they've had over recent years. Uh, certainly the future looks a lot brighter for them. 
Brilliant. Well, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on them. And uh, as always, on your weekly columns for The Times, Gregor Robertson, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you. Right, League Two Roundup. That was the significant result this weekend. Berry beating MK Dons and moving into second place. MK Dons in third, still with two games in hand, though, and just two points behind. So mainly a really significant result for Berry, more so than a really worrying one for MK Dons. But there are concerns over their recent form. So riddle me this, Lincoln fans. Was it a good weekend for you or a bad weekend for you? You've drawn two all with Swindon. That's a fact. You were away. Uh, you were also 2-0 up in that game. And, and, and in that sense, you've given away a two-goal lead. But you gained that lead with 10 men and later went down to nine men. So in that sense, a, a good point to get. But conceding so late in the game uh, must feel like you've, you've thrown away two points. I'm inclined to say that's an OK result. And, and with what happened at Gig Lane, not a terrible thing for your prospects uh, of winning the title. So we'll go for a good result there for Lincoln. And, and what a goal from Shane McCartan. Absolutely incredible strike on the volley. If you hadn't seen that yet, uh, head to Quest TV's Twitter page. You can watch a clip of Shane McCartan absolutely walloping in uh, a volley from 25, 30 yards. Just sensational. I think another really impressive result was Yeovil going to Mansfield and winning. Uh, I don't think you can deny that. I don't think you can sniff at that. They have been on horrendous form, which I've mentioned uh, no few times over the last few weeks. And it's absolutely fair to shine a light on them now because uh, to go to Mansfield, who have been one of the top, top teams in the division uh, and barely lost a game until last time out, uh, it, it's absolutely sensational. Darren Way, uh, as Fox Punter tweeted, was singling out the secretaries for Yeovil's shock away win, um, which Fox Punter said is the most Darren Way thing ever. He said the amount of phone calls that people have put in behind the scenes this week, it goes unnoticed. Everyone deserves those three points and uh, uh, very, very, very impressive and very, very, very important as well because down the bottom things are getting pretty hairy things are getting very hairy for Notts County they had 15,000 in the ground and they only could muster up a 1-0 defeat at home to Cambridge another team down at the bottom just not good enough I'm afraid a massive win for Cambridge and Colin Calderwood with a positive start in just a few games so far that change looking like it it could see Cambridge start moving away from the relegation zone who else was down there that had a good result well Crew um, had an amazing game against Newport. They won 3-2 with practically the last kick of the game. And Crew seemingly starting to score goals, which, as we know, was a problem uh, towards the start of the season. And it, it's very, 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 very valuable uh, that they've been able to, to start that. Newport just sliding away. Such a strong start this season. Um, but now looking like it might even be uh, a bit of a battle to stay in the top half. They dropped out of it down into 13th. They've been on really, really poor form. And you have to feel like the constant speculation about uh, speculation over Mike Flynn's job, whether it was regarding Shrewsbury or Bristol Rovers, cannot have helped. So uh, Flynn needs to, to, to get that side playing again. Otherwise, they're going to drop all the way down towards the relegation zone. Uh, Northampton beat Carlisle 3-0. Six in a row for Carlisle before that. Uh, a re very solid home win for Northampton in a week where they... Uh, sold Matt Crooks to Rotherham and, the, and lost another key player as well. I think that was important to allay the fears of the fans. Uh, Macclesfield went to Grimsby, another team in excellent form, and won 2-0. So Macclesfield showing that they are a different prospect than they were early in the season. And they are one of the teams in the relegation zone that look more likely to get out of it because Notts County on such a miserable run. Notts County have conceded 
57 goals in their 28 games so far this season. Not good enough. Colchester, the fourth place team, they got a good 3-0 win away at Port Vale. But Vale, worrying form for them. They haven't won in their last six games. Uh, they're only actually five points above the relegation zone. So Vale, a team we're keeping an eye on. There are a couple of nil-nil draws. Exeter Morecambe. We had a great message in from Corey Baker who said about this game, if I had never watched a League Two game before, this is what I would have expected one to be like. Not a good game there. Uh, slightly more entertaining at Oldham. Forest Green hitting the bar a few times but couldn't get the win there. Elsewhere, Tranmere went to Cheltenham, went 1-0 down. Ended up winning 3-1. So Tranmere still within distance of the playoffs, just two points behind. Forest Green in seventh. There's a, a couple of teams who are looking to get in there. Stevenage aren't a million miles away. They beat Crawley 2-1 in this very, very tight game. And uh, all in all, it was a good week in League Two. Uh, this has been a remarkably strange podcast. I hope that if you've got this far, you've enjoyed it. I, I hope that you feel like you have a decent idea of what went on in general across all three divisions. And hopefully you enjoyed the expertise that I was able to get out of George, obviously, about League One, out of Gregor Robertson, about Berry and MK Dons, and Dagen Red, uh, from Gab Sutton, about Birmingham and about Middlesbrough, and of course from David Anderson uh, making a debut as well on the podcast talking about Brentford's 3-4-3 formation. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please do share. Um, Hopefully someone might listen for the first time and think, yeah, I'm going to give that another go. That's what we're after. Uh, stay tuned. George is returning from holiday now. So over the next few weeks, we'll be back to normal. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And uh, until Thursday's betting show, that is it from us.